Welcome to The Hive Podcast, a new 10-part series with me, Natalie Nahai, exploring technology's impact on our personal, cultural and political lives. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud and YouTube and join in the conversation with the hashtag HivePodcast. If you enjoy the show, please do give us a rating on iTunes as it helps spread the word and makes it easier for other people to also find this content. And now for the show. Dr. Gillian Isaacs Russell is a psychoanalyst, psychotherapist, and a member of the British Psychoanalytic Council, the American Psychoanalytic Association, and the International Psychoanalytical Association. Having served on the editorial board as book reviews editor, she's currently on the reviewing panel for the British Journal for Psychotherapy. Gillian recently published a fascinating book called Screen Relations, which explores the limits of computer-mediated psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Described by the great Sherry Turkle as a deeply humanistic, forward-looking book, her work explores how some of our most intimate relationships, including that of analyst and patient, are affected by technologically-mediated communication. In this episode, we'll take a walk into the world of psychotherapy and explore how technology is mediating our relationships both with ourselves and with others. We'll touch on some of the insights that neuroscience is shedding on how we empathise with, perceive and relate to the world around us, and discuss what this may mean for the ways in which technology can degrade or enhance our experience. Gillian, thank you so much for joining me in conversation today. Thank you. It's really great to, to be talking to you. <laughs> um, can you tell us a bit, uh, to kick us off, about what moved you to write your book, Screen Relations? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, in 2008, I moved, um, having wound up uh, almost 30 years psychoanalytic, psychotherapeutic practice in the UK, to a remote part of the Black Hills of South Dakota, <laughs> and um, really dealing with separation, with having to adapt to a completely new environment, missing my family, missing my work. It seemed mm. to me that to be able to communicate with an everyone via technology, and in those days Skype was pretty a pretty new thing, um, was a way of actually bridging that enormous gap. And so uh, what I started to do was to work with an organization that is worldwide that was requested to train Chinese uh, psychological professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, in psychoanalytic psychotherapy. And it was a very, very interesting way of keeping my hand in when I was out in the wilderness. Um, in, in addition to that, a couple of patients that I had had in the UK also contacted me and wanted to do some a, a little bit more work um, things came up that they wanted to talk about. And so I actually became um, uh, knowledgeable about using uh, technologically mediated communication, audiovisual technologically mediated communication, things like Skype and FaceTime, um, in order to both do supervision and teaching and treatment. And while, whilst I was doing that, I was meeting again via Skype with various other clinicians in the world, um, ostensibly for a sort of peer consultation group to talk about uh, our treatment of Chinese uh, patients 
Because there's such a cultural difference, and that's really what we were going to start considering, is what it meant to be working with people who were thinking and, and operating in such a very different way. But what interestingly began to happen was that we were spending more and more time talking about our experiences actually doing treatment with technology. Hmm. And we all began to notice that the technology was altering the way that we approach treatment in actually quite significant ways. So things like we found that, you know, all of us were very experienced, but we found that we could not remember our sessions, our technologically mediated sessions, in the same way that we would uh, remember in-person sessions. Um, people found themselves taking notes um, far more than they would normally do in, in, in a session. Um, we found that we were speaking much more concretely. So if you're working in a sort of psychodynamic way, what you're doing perhaps is a very free-floating, intimate, uh, creative sort of thinking together in a relationship. But instead, I think we found that we were being directional. We were being a bit didactic. Um, we were talking in a, in a far more concrete way that was not characteristic. Um, all of these things uh, really took everyone aback because so many people uh, simply sleepwalk into using technology, expecting it to be precisely the same as the experience of working in the room in the same environment with a patient. Mm, that's fascinating. I wonder with, um, with the taking of the notes, do you... Do you think that it might be to do with the fact that you're actually physically uh, processing the information through writing it down in a way that you might not have to as much if you're physically processing it through the nonverbal cues you'd be getting face to face with someone? I think that's such a good idea. That that really is true. <laughs> um, what what I found when I I started to do the research was that um, firstly I had to actually go into all sorts of other fields in order to understand what was happening. There had been no uh, work or very little work done in psychotherapy. And so I had to look in, into informatics, um, into uh, psychology, into communication science. And, and one of the things that came up actually quite recently in some, res in some neurological research and neuroscience research is that the same neurons that um, you use in navigation, that is in moving in space or moving your body, um, are the neurons that lay down your memory. Hmm. And so if you're not moving significantly, if you're, if you're extremely immobile, then it's not, what's going on is not going to affect your memory in the same way. And so I think there's, there's some thought that actually, you know, although, yes, you're sitting in a fairly immobile way when you're talking with a patient in the same room, you still, as you say, have a lot of nonverbal um, uh, communication. You walk to uh, bring the person into the room, you sit down, you're moving um, in terms of your being in relationship to them spatially. Um, all of that is happening in, in a three-dimensional way that is not happening when you're relating um, on a screen. So, mm. so yes, I, th I think that's... In fact, uh, just to add, there's a, been a recent study that showed that 
in, in terms of actual objects, that real world, tangible objects that you have potential to physically interact with. So not even that you are interacting with them, but that you know there is a potential to interact with them. They exert a more powerful influence on your attention, on your memory, and on your neural responses than two-dimensional or three-dimensional images. And, and it's specifically because they afford the potential for physical action. And what they found was that visual richness, like 3D, didn't make any difference. The res your response is still weaker than the response to the real world object. Or, and your responses, yeah, your responses were less intense. Um, and that, in fact, equivalent to 2D responses um, when the real objects were placed behind a transparent barrier so that you would never have a manual interaction with the objects. And so I think this is, this is what we're talking about, this potential for um, interaction, which is, in fact, a form of presence. And that, um, to go back to your question about memory, yes, I think that it impacts one's memory because it isn't affecting someone neurologically in the same way as your interaction with a person or an object in a shared environment. It's just raising so many questions in my mind right now. Um, I think probably one of the ones I'd love to explore with you uh, is how this might impact relationships outside of the therapy room. So people in long distance relationships or people, I don't know, maybe calling home to their family when they live in different countries. Um, how are you finding uh, these screen relations mediating the ways in which we connect with each other, maybe emotionally? Well, there, I think there are positives and there are negatives. Um, and, and I just want to quickly say that I'm not a Luddite. <laughs> Far from it. Um, I'm talking to you. I still do um, some treatment online and supervision and teaching. Um, I conducted a courtship very much um, through technology <laughs> before <laughs> comparing the in-person experience. So, so um, you know, I, I don't think... I, want, I don't want to be extreme on either end of, of the spectrum, but I, I think there are, there are positives and negatives. Positives obviously are that there's continuity, that being able to contact a patient or be in a relationship where you can check in regularly despite the distances is, is really important and it's a wonderful function of technology that we can have continuity, that we can be able to touch base on the other hand, the downside of it is that um, more than 60% of our communication is nonverbal. And uh, this is absolutely limited by working on a screen. And so there is a tremendous potential for very subtle misunderstanding, very subtle lack of uh, connection in that way. Um, and I, so to depend on entirely on technology for an intimate connection is a rather perilous thing to do. And do you think that the the ways in which we process visual information and that we kind of we lose also because of the size of the screen, we only have a very small amount of information to go on. So typically, I guess, the head and the shoulders. Um, but when we use the screens to connect with, with our loved ones, especially an intimate relationship, do you think we lose something about the sensuality of it and maybe gain a perspective of the observer and the observed, which takes us somehow out of our embodied experience? Oh, quite. I think that's a really good uh, description, actually, 
because uh, you know you spoke about the embodied experience, and mm-hmm. there there is we are neurologically wired to connecting in an embodied way. That's how we keep it real, as it were. And and the evidence is that mediating our relationships technologically actually degrades the quality of the relationship. Um, One of the things that happens is we, in some ways, we lose the stress, which is an important stress, of being co-present together with all that that implies. Um, the spontaneity, the messiness, the um, the fact that there is the potential to act out. As one of the patients I interviewed said, um, the potential to kick or kiss. <laughs> All of those things in reality bring a richness, bring a, bring a kind of immediacy that talking on screens completely eliminates. Hmm. So let's talk about the kiss and the kick thing. What What's encompassed by that uh, by that phrase within the psychoanalytic or psychotherapeutic context right well um, there is something really important about experiencing the risk the potential um, for interaction within a psychoanalytic relationship um, you may not be doing those things you know hopefully you won't be kicking um, and you're not supposed to be kissing. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the fact that those things could happen, and yet, for instance, the psychotherapist is providing an environment of safety where um, feelings are regulated and talked about, is a very healing experience. If you're actually separated by distance and um, on a screen, then one knows those things will never happen. And so there's no testing about the, I think, there was one patient who said to me, for instance, that he found it extremely important because he felt himself to be a very trying, very difficult person, that he could sit with his therapist and his therapist would listen to him and bear him and keep seeing him and keep thinking about him without running away. And with the protection of a screen, one never tests that. One never tests one's vulnerability. One never tests one's aggressiveness. And and so in terms of treatment, it's terribly important, I think, to be able to be ultimately to be in the same room. An analyst I was interviewing in my ethnographic interview said to me that what she found was with with screen treatment, it's good to a certain point, and then you hit a wall. That's the way she put it. And I think that's part of the wall, that there is no testing, true testing, of the relationship in a shared environment. Hmm. I wonder with, with the, um, the fact that it's an environment in which you can test someone and you can do it in a way that you are physically being witnessed, if the fact that we lose that through the screen mm. also contributes to the ways in which we're seeing people um, act out towards each other and causing real life harm, but without any real life consequence. So for instance, the trolling that we see, is that something that you would draw a connection with? Yes, absolutely. Um, there is this this thing that originally was called the online uh, disinhibition effect. And mm. I, I think that is the experience of not having any consequence for one's action, um, not seeing the the impact of one's actions on the other person. 
one of the big costs of tech, technological um, communication and uh, having relationships through technology is is that we lose a sense of empathy. Mm. And um, I think that this is something that we're finding uh, quite generally um, in population who where we can take our screens everywhere with us, where we have this um, always on, always connected uh, experience, but that we're not actually in an embodied uh, state with someone else, that we find it then very hard to put ourselves in someone else's shoes. And when you lose your empathic uh, function, that has tremendous consequences in, in real world uh, uh, interaction. I mean, I think one of the things that um, has been found is, a, what is it, I think a 40% decrease. They were, they were doing a, a, a study in empathy. There's been a 40% decrease in, in empathy. Um, I think they were doing this with university students since in the 1980s. And one of the connections is this sort of solipsistic um, withdrawing into using technology rather than having face-to-face interactions. Hmm. I'm just listening to this and thinking um, if there are, there are parallels also with this um, to a lot of the, the videos that get shared a lot on platforms like Instagram, for instance. So one of the things that I was researching recently for a talk was um, the popularity of specific types of videos. And one of the videos that's most watched is um, they call it kind of slime videos. It's a bit like Play-Doh where you have this putty or this dough that you can play with that's very sensual and mushy and you're basically watching people play with it. And it seemed to me when I was watching this that we still, we haven't obviously lost the desire for this presence with our environment to be able to interact with the things around us, but we're just doing it through the medium that we have at our disposal. So the phone is the quickest and easiest thing to pick up and because it's so seductive, it's something which, you know, we're probably primed to pick up. And yet we don't get as much satisfaction as if we actually went and bought ourselves some Play-Doh, um, which I am all for. <laughs> Do you think that there's, um, there's a danger of these needs being played out in ways that actually are not satisfying enough? I think that what's happening is we're learning to settle for simulation. Mm. And we, we, it's not a conscious slide into that. Um, I, I think that what happens with using technology is that first it's used as better than nothing. You know, it's a good way of communicating. It's better than nothing. Then it's accepted as, well, it's good enough. And in some cases, then it's accepted as better than anything. Mm. And um, so without actually being conscious of this, we are accepting an as-if relationship with human beings, other human beings, and the world a simulated, sort of diluted relationship rather than an immediate and real relationship. And that's a really quite a dangerous uh, slippery slope. I was really, um, I don't know the the videos that you're talking about, but I, I was quite impressed with the idea that it was Play-Doh and the way that you described it as sort of, you know, mushy, slimy, because I think that's a really good uh, sort of symbolic, uh, a kind of metaphor of what we're trying to avoid in relationships by curating our relationships. That it that it isn't messy, it isn't slimy, it isn't the real thing if it's by text 
or if it's um, if it's you know not in the same room, there isn't the same vulnerability, there isn't the same risk. So it's neat, so it's controlled. Mm. Um, but of course, what we lose is the wonderful kind of spontaneity. We lose silences. We lose not knowing what to say, struggling to form uh, some sort of connection by curating ourselves in these very separate sort of ways. Mm. I wonder if alongside that there's also, um, there's something that I've experienced in relationships, that there's also the possibility through texting, along with all of its issues, like the fact that it's asynchronous and you can get something at one point and then reply to it three hours later and things have changed. But aside from that, I wonder if it's also something which can have a positive impact for those of us who find specific things difficult to address, or maybe we find eye-to-eye, person-to-person contact in addressing these things too vulnerable or too uh, difficult, do you think that it also can play a role in a positive sense for allowing people a channel to express themselves where otherwise they may not? Yes, I I, I guess that's a complicated, that's a complicated idea. It can, (laughs) because it can but only if it's followed up with the testing it out in reality. In mm. other words, the the equivalent of that in the arguments that I've been given in, in terms of psych- psychotherapy is people say, well, you know, what about people who are, um, who are too afraid to leave their homes, who feel too vulnerable to bring themselves to therapy? Isn't this a wonderful solution that they can have their therapy in a safe place in their own environment online and um, not have to be terrified. And I suppose my my answer to that would be yes, yes, um, it's a good start. But if that person never leaves their home, if they never test what it feels like to actually be in person with another person, then what's the point? You mm. You never actually get to the healing place. And I think that's the same with, for instance, texting or writing, like writing a letter, you know, if you're going to go to the most, you know, sort of basic before we had text and email. Yes, you know, you might be able to put your thoughts together in a very um, uh, sort of calm, uh, well-reasoned way on paper and and to give it to someone in a way that doesn't cause great um, distress or mm. um, trigger them in some way. But in the end, you're going to need to be able to be with that person face-to-face and follow it through. Mm. Do you think that this kind of, this ability to almost um, distance ourselves by using our screens, by using these means of communication, do you think that this is something which is significantly impacting our mental health at a kind of society-wide or culture-wide level? Yes, I, I, I'm i beginning to think that it is. Again, I don't want to sound extreme or, you know, like a scaremonger, but on the other hand, I think we are seeing a rise of, of you know, narcissism in, in the society, along with uh, this decrease in empathy and um, perhaps also a difficulty in communicating. And so, yes, I, I think that it is impacting on our mental health insofar as one of the essential things for our mental health is to feel that we are in relation, that we're in communication 
with other people. There's um, a study done by um, uh, a psychiatrist named Alan Teo, um, where he was looking at uh, elderly uh, people, not patients, just simply um, people who senior citizens and mm-hmm. their uh, rates of loneliness. And, you know, sometimes Skyping um, or even talking on the phone is considered a great way of solving someone's isolation. And indeed it is. It does go some way to that. But I think that the, what he found in the end was that the only real um, thing that met someone's deep depression from loneliness was personal, um, actual co-present relating that it was that that actually um, was able to help someone deal with intense, um, depressed loneliness. Mm. I remember there was um, a study that I was reading about recently that was looking at rates of loneliness in the states in the adult population and how it's significantly increased compared to, say, 10 or 20 years ago. Um, And it seems to me as though uh, we're becoming a bit more aware of some of these more negative impacts of the ways in which we use technology. Um, Is this something that you think people are starting to get a little more uh, savvy about? I really hope so. Um, I I think that um, I've noticed uh, certainly there have been some things raised by younger people. Um, For instance, uh, I just was uh, made aware of the song by um, Noah Cyrus called We're Fucked. <laughs> oh, I haven't heard that yet. Yeah, but, check well, it out. I don't know whether that's allowed. Um, on, on totally your, allowed. Yeah, that's fine. But it is, it is actually generally available. And one of the things that she was talking about was this uh, sort of um, real sense for her of addiction to Instagram, addiction to being um, really um, connected all the time rather than having a uh, kind of um, intimate and real relationship with people. So I think that that this that people some people are becoming aware of it, and I would hope that in fact the younger generation that we as that myself anyway as an older person, you know, we tend, especially psychotherapists, for some reason, tend to say, well, this is this is a sign of the times. We have to keep up with the times, rather than actually saying, you know maybe it's a problem that we need to address. Mm. And it sounds to me like perhaps this is being considered um, by some bits of the population. I I only wish that it would be more so. My concern is that um, there is a lot of money to be made through communication via technology in a not very useful way, and that that may actually be a very powerful deciding force in how we actually do communicate, particularly in my case, via um, in psychotherapy. You know, you have these organizations called BetterHelp and and TalkSpace that provide supposed therapy via text, 24 hours a day, anytime. And um, this is a very concerning thing because it's almost, it's one step from um, AI and a a sort of robotic provision of psychotherapy which is pretty dangerous quite dangerous yeah i I, um i just recently watched today actually um a film that you can i think you can find it on uh do you trust this computer.org and it interviews people who are prominent in the field of ai so people like elon musk and various 
researchers um, and founders. And um, one of the things that, that it discusses is the ways in which we're sharing very intimate data, either through qualitative things like our comments or blogs, but also the kinds of stuff that we like or that we retweet, etc. Um, that we're sharing all of this and AI is learning about relevant information and how these things connect and could then at some point in the fairly near future be used to manipulate us because it's something which is easily done. I thought um, that was already happening, but that's, yeah. what, that's what I heard. Well, yeah. yeah, I think it is. I think it is already happening. Um, but yeah, I suppose ramping that up is probably even more frightening. I wonder if, do you find, or in, in the work that you've done, have you come across any kind of cultural differences in the ways in which people use technology? Um, so, for instance, with your work with people uh, from China, are there differences in the ways that we're using this kind of tech? Oh, I, I can't, you know, speak to all cultures, but from what I've observed in China, um, perhaps perhaps the Western world is caught up somewhat. But initially, they, they, the people that I worked with seemed much more au fait with using um, technology for communication than, than we were, um, very, very adapted to it, very um, took it for granted. And indeed, um, in terms of providing uh, psychotherapy, which was in when I began to teach there a newer thing, especially a psychoanalytic, psychodynamic, individual sort of approach, um, there there was, I remember once a, a trainee who expressed surprise that anyone actually worked in the same room. As far as she, wow. was, as far as she was concerned, that's how you provide psychotherapy online. And that was it. Oh, mm. That's extraordinary. Mm. Wow. It makes me sort of wonder about, um, I, I think about this often, about um, the, the ways in which we use, for instance, augmented reality or virtual reality to kind of take us out of our present physical environment um, but then also how there seems to be this desire to experience physical edges and risk by going to things like immersive theatre so there's this uh, wonderful company called Punch Drunk which used to be based in the UK I don't know if it still is but they're currently running an event in New York called Sleep No More which is based on Shakespeare's Macbeth and you go into this space and you physically experience um, this theatre, which feels very, very real and it's completely embodied and you can get taken into private scenes with actors who will grab your hand and take your mask off and it's very edgy. Mm. And I wonder if this kind of desire to experience things in an embodied way, in a sensual way, in a physical way, um, is coming in direct response to this, I would say almost like this this numbing that we're doing to ourselves. What what are your thoughts maybe about that? So I, I just want I don't know this particular theatre piece. Is this theatre piece interactive in terms of actually being with the actors rather than it being virtual reality? Yes. Yeah, so you move into a physical location and you can follow actors around and you wear a mask um, and you're supposed to sort of be quiet and observing, but you can walk around the entire space and pick things up. Um, but then if they grab your hand and they take your mask off, then you go through this kind of the third wall and you, you enter into their world. Right. And it's not virtual. It's real? No, it's real. Well, I, I would think that that's, that's a, a really interesting response to um, perhaps even our, all of us being so accustomed to watching films or, or, or um, television or things on our computers. I was going to speak, though, to the idea of virtual reality, because, mm. of course, in um, in psychotherapy, that is something that is has been greeted as a, a 
very big frontier and something that might be tremendously effective. It's being used to treat people with OCD and phobias. And um, just also to, you know, bring up a little uh, uh, word of warning about that, one would think that because you're having this virtual experience where you do um, perhaps even in the future see your therapist, the person who you know, um, in the room with you via virtual reality, that it's going to be the same experience. And uh, and again, the, um, some research that's being done not at all with therapy and um, just because the neuroscientists are interested in the effect of virtual reality on the brain is being done at UCLA. Um, they They actually took rats whose um, brains in that perceptual way are very, very similar to human beings. And they put them in a real environment and then they mapped their brain and saw what was happening with their neurons. Um, The same neurons, in fact, that um, I was talking about earlier in terms of navigation and memory. Mm. And then they mapped them in the virtual environment. Um, and in an intense, intensely immersive virtual environment that was precisely the same as the real environment. And to all intents and purposes, externally observing the mice or the rats, they looked exactly the same. They maneuvered in the same way in the virtual and the real environments. But the readouts on their neurological scans were totally different. Wow. In fact, the rats um, in the virtual reality, their neurons, um, 60% of them shut down. And the ones that remained um, active fired in completely random ways. In fact, very much the way rats with Alzheimer's disease fire. No. Which would imply that the brain was not experiencing the virtual reality environment at all like it experienced the real environment. And this is despite the fact that the rats looked like they were maneuvering precisely the same in both environments. That's actually quite troubling. (laughs) Well, it's troubling enough that the researcher called for great caution um, for public use of things like Oculus Rift and, you know, the the gaming uh, 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 functions of VR because one doesn't know with the brain being so plastic um, and so responsive what kind of wiring or rewiring is happening and until one does know how it's affecting the brain, it perhaps would be very wise to be cautious about one's use of virtual reality. Well, well, it certainly sounds like we need to be moderating our use of virtual reality. I mean, I know there was a study that I read about recently that was looking at one of the positive medical applications for people with um, significant burns going into, I can't remember what they called it, I think it was called Ice World. Um, anyway, going into a simulated freezing environment and how it reduced their experience of pain. Mm. So I wonder with uh, with that, again, if it just needs to come with some sort of manual of use it this many times a day for this kind of thing, great, versus maybe not so much that kind of like with, I don't know, mushrooms or anything that we use to kind of change our mental states, maybe it needs to come with a health warning. I, th- I think so, until, the, until they understand exactly what is happening. Mm. And you know, it's like all these things. Mm. <laughs> So what's your greatest concern for the future, given everything that we know at this point in time? I think my greatest concern would be that we somehow begin or continue to accept a degraded form of intimacy. 
that we lose our sense of what true intimacy, what true relating is like, and in, in fact settle for something that um, is simply simulated and mistake that for the real thing. I think that will lead to all sorts of both um, societal, cultural, and on an intimate level, all sorts of problems. So that is my greatest concern for the future. And, and, and in particular, in terms of psychotherapy, that this kind of treatment will become completely institutionalized because it's cheap, it's convenient, supposedly it's democratizing, um, it's available, and it perhaps makes a lot of money for the people who provide it. So, mm. so that would be my main concern for the future. And what would be your greatest hope? That we don't let technology run us, but that we are able to make wise choices and use technology in a way that really does benefit us. You know, it, it's our choice. We don't need to simply respond to the corporations and we don't um, need to sleepwalk. We can be conscious and therefore, we can use technology in a really good way. And I think that there are plenty of possibilities, just like you said with the, um, the, the regulation of pain or the really simple suggestion that I made that if you're working long term with a patient and they're ill or they're away or there's some interruption to the, the uh, therapy that you can gain continuity using technology. Um, there are all sorts of good things one can do with technology, but we must be conscious and we must make choices instead of simply falling into uh, using something and sleepwalking. Hmm. And if you could give people one action that they can take today that would help contribute towards building that future, what would that be? Disconnect sometimes. Choose to disconnect. Um, in terms of really making choices about your technology you could you could choose for instance to use something like the, there's a there are many um, bits of technology but there's a very lovely one called the light phone which simply um, you can make calls on in text that's it take use that sometimes so that you're not connected all the time um, disconnect and have the experience of silence um, disconnect and have the experience of being with someone in the same room and not knowing what to say, um, in having to search for some way of being with them. Allow yourself to be messy. Allow yourself to be spontaneous. Um, you don't have to get rid of your iPhone. I'm not going to get rid of mine. But um, I think that make choices, make wise choices. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can find resources and links on the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please do give us a rating on iTunes and join in the conversation with the hashtag Hive Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.